Let me pray and then we'll look into God's word today. God, we, we do believe uh, in the Holy Spirit. And that's a statement that's recited in some of the creeds that churches around the world read today. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. We say that with them, but we say that not simply as just a creedal statement. We say that as a desperate reality of our lives that if any of us are going to understand the Bible, if any of us are going to be spoken to by your word in the Bible, and if any of us have any kind of power to change because of what the Bible tells us, uh, it has to be a result of your Holy Spirit. So we rely on you, Holy Spirit. We depend on you. Uh, you're our counselor. You're our friend. You're our advocate. So as we look into your word today, um, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and we ask on your name. Amen. Um, first sermon, all right? My first sermon. No, nobody here was there. I wasn't even, didn't even know Kathy yet. My first public sermon in the summer of 1988 was in Hope, Indiana, small town. What would you guess my first sermon was about? It was one of these four things from the Gospel of Matthew. Option A, the genealogy of Jesus. I spoke about all 42 generations. Option B, Peter leaves fishing to follow Jesus. Option C, Peter walks on the water. Option D, resurrection of Jesus. Who said C? Why? That's true. Okay. It just seems like me. When I was thinking about this, I thought, and actually, the, the, when, I, when I, I, I taught high school for three years in this small town of Hope, Indiana. It's on the other side of Columbus, Indiana. And somehow, after my first year of seminary, somebody at this church, I think it was First Baptist Church of Hope, asked me if I'd come and speak. And, um, and I did talk about Peter walking on the water, and I think the title of the sermon was uh, God's, God's Fool, because someone was doing things for Jesus is seems quite foolish. So I'm surprised when you say that seems like me, it kind of warms my heart. Because I thought that's, when I think about it, I thought that, that is me. I kind of like thinking about those things. I hope, although it probably would have been me, I would have probably sunk down in the water just like Peter. But anyway, all right. So first sermon is, or first public sermon is the topic of the day. Next one, Jesus' first public sermon, as recorded in the book of Matthew, was about what? A, the Beatitudes. B, make Israel great again, Mega. All right. C, something about forgiveness of sin. D, how to go to heaven after you die. E, something to make all, everybody feel guilty. Or F, which I may be a leading question here, something else. What was his first public sermon? His first public sermon, F, would be something else because he talked about this. Next slide. This was his first... So in the, at first I thought it was, was his first recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew, but it wasn't. His first recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew was when he went to get baptized by John. And John said, I, shouldn't be, you shouldn't, I should baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, we need to do this for all righteousness. And then the next words, Jesus has this conversation with Satan in the wilderness. But then when he kind of had his public ministry, it said, then... Jesus went about preaching this, repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This was almost his only sermon. I mean, yeah, he, talked to the, he did the Beatitudes, but John the Baptist, what was John the Baptist's sermon they talk about? Repent of your sins, turn to God, the kingdom of heaven is near. What did Jesus, when he sent the disciples out, and he said, I'm going to send you out, heal the sick, you know, heal the sick, and preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. And I say that because we often, 
We often misunderstand or don't understand that that was a laser focus of Jesus to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes there's too much focus on the word repent. Repent simply means kind of rethink your life, turn around, think differently because the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus is not saying you're going to go to heaven after you die. That's not what he's saying here because you have to think about what did the original hearers hear this when they heard him say that. The original hearers would not have thought, oh, he's talking about heaven after we die. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is talked about a lot. Um, other Gospels, it's called, referred to as the kingdom of God. Those are interchangeable terms. And the average Jewish person, what they were hoping for was the kingdom of God was going to be a time militarily where the Messiah would come and kick the Romans out of their country and the kingdom of David... Which, who was a great ruler of centuries gone by, the prominence of God's people, you know, we'd, have, we'd finally be free of the Romans and we would flourish again. That's what they thought he was saying. But we're going to see he meant totally something different because the kingdom of heaven is like, like I said, it's a laser point focus of Jesus. He talks about that. But he explains it to them because, again, they're expecting one thing. They're expecting military victory. And maybe today in our age, we just, we just think that means heaven after we die, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's a present-day reality for us. So we'll talk about today because in Matthew 13, he talks about him. So the guy doing a series called Follow Jesus, There's No One Like Him. So the Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, who is a completely unlikely follower of Jesus. But... <clears throat> I, I didn't know this till I started studying Matthew, but Matthew is an incredibly organized person as he wrote this. He was a, he was a tax collector, so sorry, John, but he was kind of like an accountant. He had one of these accounting mindsets, probably really organized, maybe to the point where it drove everybody crazy. But the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, there are some chapters, he's very clear, he writes some chapters where it's all about conflict with the Pharisees. Some chapters is all about miracles. Early on, the chapter is about the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. This chapter, chapter 13, which we started last week, and I'm doing this week again, is all about parables. There's like seven parables in chapter 13. Stories that illustrate a bigger truth. That's what a parable is. It's a story to illustrate a bigger truth. Last week, we did one parable, but this week, I'm going to just kind of go over the next six because 13 is just parable, 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 parable. Stop. The disciples say, what did that one mean? Then parable, parable, parable. And all the parables, he's explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, they were thinking kingdom of heaven, military victory. He's explaining, no, it's not like that. There's a different kind of thing. So, so go to the next slide. So he starts off, there's six different parables. Actually, there's seven, but I'm talking about six today. In chapter 13, everyone, when he's telling the story, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And then he gives a visual illustration because he's trying to help them understand this is what I came to do, all right? First one is this. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. And then he goes on to say he planted good seed in his field, but overnight an enemy came and sowed weeds into the field. So when the crop started growing, there were weeds with it. And the worker said, what do we do? And, Jesus, and, and the farmer says, well, gather all the wheat but also gather the weeds and put those in a fire to be destroyed. 
kind of the sense of there's going to be good with bad. All right? That was the first parable. Next one. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in the field. Mustard seed at that time was unknown to be the smallest of all seeds. And Jesus said, but when it's planted, it becomes one of the biggest in the garden and it gives shade to the many. So this sense of a small beginning has a significant flourishing aspect toward other people. All right, and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about these. I'll, I'm going to go through all six of them, then we'll stop and talk about the themes here. The next one, third one, the kingdom of heaven is like, so Jesus is just telling these stories. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used when making bread. Same kind of theme. A, he says a little bit of yeast and a bunch of flour, in a bunch of flour permeates the whole dough and has an effect on the whole dough. So it may seem small to begin with, like a mustard seed, but over time it has a permeating effect on the bread. All right. Next one. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure discovered hidden in a field. And Jesus says, so a guy finds this treasure in a field, and he, when he finds it, he's like, he rehides it, sells everything he has to buy the land so he could have the treasure. He, so Jesus is equating them. The kingdom of heaven is like this incredible treasure that somebody sold all they had to get. Next one. Kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. Merchant's trying to find pearls, going to all these pearl shows, wherever they had then. He finally finds one. Same phrase as the other parable. He sold all he had to get this one thing. Again, Jesus is trying to give us a sense of what kingdom of heaven is like. What, it, what life is like when Jesus is the king. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. What is, what is life like when Jesus is the king? You know, we tend to think of like the United Kingdom, Great Britain, it's, it's, it's borders da, 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 and it's everything. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven is what is life like for John when Jesus is the king? What's it like for Sadie when Jesus is the king? The kingdom of heaven is not this geographical thing. It's planted inside of us with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to help them understand, all right? And in this case, it's kind of the sell all you have. The next one, kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net thrown into the water. Throw it in there, and when they start, the fishermen start to sort out the fish. Good fish go here, and the bad fish go there. So it's kind of this sorting, the good and the bad, kind of like the good crops and the weeds, the good and the bad. So Jesus goes through like six different ones, and those are the six, but there's three different themes I want to talk about. Because, again, we have to understand, what, what is he trying to help us understand about what does it mean for us in 2022 to live as people who carry the kingdom of heaven inside of us? Because if he's the king, he's not, just, he's not the king of Bloomington. He's not the king of the United States. He's the king of individuals who have the spirit of Jesus in them. And somehow that's his strategy to grow the kingdom. His strategy is not to get more land. His strategy is to get more hearts. And if he gets more hearts, something happens. All right? It's, a, it's not a military thing, all right? So there's three themes. First theme is this. There's this sense of little to large. You know, the, a little mustard seed has no, it's not impressive, nothing, but it grows to this big, large tree that gives shade to people. A little bit of yeast in flour permeates the whole thing. So there's something Jesus is talking about, almost like this 
It'll be a slow but sustained and influential growth of the spirit of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. So one of the things that is like, you know, you, you don't know the little things you do that are motivated by the Spirit of God. You might think, it's not making any difference. It's not doing anything. Um, there's times I wonder with Exodus Church, are we making any difference in Bloomington? You may think that about your own life. I'm making a difference. If you're doing anything because you're following Jesus, we don't even understand the influence that can have or is having. We have no idea. Small becomes big. And what we tend to do in American culture, we despise small things. We want a big thing. We want to, I want to, if I want to make a change in my life, I want it to be a big change. If I want to see something happen in a church, I want it to be a big thing. And Jesus is saying sometimes it's the small choices that you are making because Jesus is your king and you're obeying what the king tells you to do they will have a result in your life and even in the lives of others around you, your family or whatever, things are happening that you can't see. Maybe that's the best way to say it because sometimes, you know, if I'm planting mustard seed in the ground, it's like I don't think anything's going to happen. Over time, though, I can't see what's happening underground, but God's still moving. And all of a sudden, it's this big tree. I, I don't understand how yeast works in dough. It's like, I've seen those little yeast packets. Kathy will pour, rip apart one and put it in there. It's like, I don't understand how that works. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that. Little choices you make. You may think what you're doing is... You, you maybe have someone in your life that you really want to see them turn and follow Jesus more fully. Maybe it's a family member. And you may think, I don't think I'm having any impact on them. I don't think anything I say makes any difference. You don't know that. I don't know that. Because even the smallest thing you do, if you're doing it because Jesus asked you to do it, um, is going to have influence. So Jesus is saying that's how the kingdom grows. It doesn't grow because big bang events. It grows because the people who have the spirit of Jesus in them choose to be obedient in their response to Jesus, and the kingdom begins to grow inside of us and through us to other people and it's just that sense of slow sustained growth because again they were again they were expecting boom kick the romans out but jesus said, no no the influence my influence in the world starts in the hearts of individual people who make choices every day to forgive somebody to be generous um, to listen to my voice it's those things make a difference and if you're like me, sometimes you wonder, is it making any difference? I'm, I'm trying to do what Jesus wants me to do with this part of my life, with my money, with my time. I try to take time to pray. I try to read the Bible. We kind of want, I do at least, I want the big bang kind of growth. But Jesus is saying, no, just, it, it'll grow. Do what Jesus is asking you to do, and it'll grow. So this kind of little large thing about how the, how the kingdom influence of Jesus increases. Next one. This one, this one always grabs me. It's like, because two different stories, two of the parables, one who, guy found a treasure in a field, another person who finally found the pearl they were looking for, and the same phrase is used in both parables. They sold everything they owned to get it. 
which sounds like a pretty radical thing to do, right? And it sounds pretty radical even in terms of my spiritual life. Like, you're asking for everything, Jesus? Like, if I want the kind of joy and peace you promise, I have, can I go 90%? No, everything. You know, it's, it's buying everything. And Jesus is, is, is a clear, clear sense of you can't, you can't part way to Jesus. There's, there's an old hymn, some of you might know it, and I say old hymn, I kind of age myself, but I am over 60, so I can say those things now. There's an old hymn, um, all, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. So this one guy said, sometimes I think what we really mean is one-tenth to Jesus I surrender, one-tenth to him, or half to Jesus I surrender. But when we say all to Jesus I surrender, this is where I always talk about, I love being what I call truth in our singing. I don't know that I always mean that. I want to mean that. I want to mean all to Jesus I surrender, but all, like, you know, I've got a house and cars and wife and kids and money and I've got relatively decent health, and it's like, all to Jesus I surrender? Can I just keep part of it? So Jesus is communicating to people, you know, following him is an all-or-nothing proposition. It's not a, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm gonna, this part of my life, I'm taking care of myself. But I am going to do the Jesus thing on Sunday mornings, I'll even read my Bible, but this part of my life, my relationships, money, whatever, that's on me. So to sell everything, um, there's, a, there's a chorus, you guys don't know this, this is not like Matt singing Sunday either, but there's a chorus that I years ago learned, and I, I still, when I sing it, it makes me think of some times in my life where God asked me to give things up, but the chorus goes, uh, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And the last line is a killer if you're honest about it. And nothing I desire compares with you. It's like nothing. I mean, I, mean, I have to. So when I sing that song, I have to be honest, that's not where I am yet. I want to be there, but to say nothing I desire compares with you. Actually, that song was meaningful to me when I had to break up with somebody I was dating. I thought nothing I desire compares with you, and I can't... I, I, I felt like God was saying, you got to do this. Do I have to sell it all? Yes, sell it all. And I don't know, I don't know what situations you're facing or will face that God may come back to you and say, this is where you got to give up everything. Again, I, I don't know that Jesus is going to say, scrap your house, sell your house, and go be home. But there's an, you know what I mean? When he says, give it up, you, you'll know what he means by that. Give it up. Because if you want... This treasure in a field, this treasure of you know, peace, joy, contentment. There's a, there's a point where you're going to have to make a break with something. May not everything, but you may have to make a break with something that you have held on to that you think, I have to have that in order to have the joy and peace that I want. And God, Jesus is saying, no, you don't. Make a break and buy the treasure. But you can't have the treasure and still hold on to your, whatever you're holding on to. So Jesus explained this to people. This is how life with God works. And the last one, the last one is a little more challenging for me. And maybe I'm guessing it is for you. 
Because two of the parables have this phrase in it. One of them is the one with a farmer sowed good wheat. And he became at nighttime and sowed weeds. And Jesus said, okay, the good wheat we harvest. We don't take the bad wheat out. We don't take the weeds out now, but we will take them out and we'll throw them into the fire. Okay, so there's a picture there. He's trying to help us understand something. And the other one is, okay, big fish net. The good fish here, bad fish here. Good fish here, bad fish here. And this is how Jesus said he, he gave them this interpretation. Let me just read it. Leave that on the screen right now. Because they were, you know, they'd ask him, what does that one mean? What does that one mean? All right? So this one, the one about the weeds. This is what Jesus says. And again, this is one of these things where it's like, this is about the fiery furnace, hell, whatever you want to call it. So this is how Jesus says, the son of man, this is after the wheat and the weeds. The son of man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everyone that causes sin and all who do evil. That was a little stark. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've read this before. When I read it this week, I just had to stop and like, wow, that's... They will remove his, from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who de- do evil. I mean, there's people involved here. And it's just like... The next one, the bad fish, good fish. Jesus says this. These are the words of Jesus. So it's not... This is not some hellfire and brimstone teacher, preacher down in the old white Baptist church down in the corner. This is Jesus saying this. Good fish, bad fish. So the angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says to the disciples, do you understand this? And they actually say, yeah, we do. We understand. They, they didn't. We don't. I mean, this, this, is a, this is almost part of the Bible at times we want to apologize for. Well, you know, it just... Because we think it makes God sound or Jesus sound to be harsh or mean... And when I was in seminary, which was a while ago, the one thing I remember struggling with a lot was the idea of eternal punishment. I remember thinking, I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with eternal punishment. And granted, some of my hard time with it may have been shaped by my upbringing where hell was used as a, as a motivation to get people into heaven, and Jesus never did that. He never dangled hell in front of people or... If you are a literary person, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, which tended to be more about God's an angry person and he's going to throw you in the fire unless you follow him. That's not the spirit of the Bible. That's not the spirit of Jesus. But I remember in seminary, I wrestled with it for, I don't know, it was months. And I thought, I just I can't. I don't. And then I finally came to the, the, the realization of, okay, Jesus talks about this. He, now, he says fiery furnace. We don't know. He didn't say hell here. So we, but there seems like there's something punishing about what's going on here. And my only conclusion I had to come to was, okay, I don't understand it. It unsettles me. But Jesus talked about it. Jesus believed it. And I trust Jesus. I don't, I don't know that I like it. I don't know. I wish there was a way we could nuance it. But he's very clear here. And I thought, well, but I trust Jesus. I trust him. And somehow, 
This is a function of the love of God, and that kind of blows all of our minds a bit. But otherwise, I suppose, if evil is allowed to persist in the kingdom of heaven, why would I want to be in the kingdom where the goodness of God reigns but evil people can roam around? Because there are some people, and the Bible even talks about this, that they don't want to be under the kingship of Jesus. And if they don't want to be under the kingship of Jesus, they don't belong in the kingdom. They don't want to be there. So it's, it's uh, you know, C.S. Lewis actually said one time that everybody, Everybody who would want, everybody who, anybody who's in heaven will be there because they want to be there. They can stand it. They, they, they want Jesus to be the king over life. And if somebody doesn't want that, that's their choice. So this idea of separation in both these, you know, the, the harvesters are going to separate the wheat from the weeds. The harvesters are going to separate the good fish from the bad fish. The harvesters are going to separate wicked and evil people from those who want to have Jesus as their king. And so it's, there was a British writer years ago, I can't remember his name, but he just believed in the end, evil people would all of a sudden just be voila, turned into good. But God loves us too much to control us like robots, right? He won't do that to us. He won't do that to people like that. Um, it doesn't make us wish people being thrown into the fire furnace. Nobody should, even, Scripture even says God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. But it's the reality of life under the kingship of Jesus is something we choose to follow and give him that role in our lives. And there are those who don't choose that. And there's consequences in God's kingdom for that. Because he wants his kingdom to be kind of like Eden used to be. So, uh, and on this, it may, it, may, it may feel like that one is the last one I put up there. I didn't put it up there to kind of make that the point of the sermon because um, it almost feels kind of heavy. Well, it doesn't almost. It does feel heavy. But the sense of Jesus is helping people understand that life in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is, kingdom of heaven is like slow growth. Little things yield big results. That's part of what's going to happen in your life. Little choices will yield big results. Little choices every day yield big results spiritually. Flourishing is the word that he uses. That uh, You may not think those choices are, are heading in that direction, but they do. And then he, you know, this sense of there's going to be things Jesus is going to ask you to let go of. He may, not, he may ask you to sell everything. But he might ask you to sell everything in a certain part of your life. I mean, he may ask for everything, but sometimes it's just, no, I want this part. Then I'm going to ask for this part. Then I'm going to ask for this part, and sooner or later it's going to be all. He doesn't ask for it often all at once. And then this last part is that, that there is uh, consequences for those who repeatedly, over and over, choose to ignore Jesus as king. And so... And Matthew's telling us this, and he's telling us this. Go to my last slide. My last slide every week is simply because he's the last one. Uh, follow, yeah. Because Jesus, just follow me. Trust what I'm saying. Trust what I'm doing. Follow me. 
And the kind of life you've always imagined, which is the kingdom of God life, it's the kind of life you've always imagined you could have. It's the kind of life you hunger for. The opening passage from Isaiah where it talks about when this guy's in charge, the servant, I, he's going to fight for justice. He's going to be resilient. He's not going to hurt the brokenhearted. He's not going to crush anybody. He's going to be the greatest king that we've ever imagined. He will bring joy to the nations. That's what he talks about. So uh, follow Jesus in little things in your life. Follow Jesus in any way in your life. Um, but he talks about this kingdom that every one of you, it's in your home. If you're a follower of Jesus, your home is the kingdom of heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, your office space is the kingdom of heaven. And you have influence. Not by fighting against people or arguing. You have influence because the spirit of Jesus is in you. He will lead you to do things that will increase, permeate your influence and his influence. So let me pray and then we'll uh, take communion. So Jesus... Um, you say a lot of things that motivate us, a lot of things that light up our hearts. Um, and we do acknowledge you say some things that are sometimes hard. And um, you're not Santa Claus. You're not like every, you tell us the truth from every angle. Because in the end, your desire for us is that we be fully alive fully awake and fully free. That's your desire for us. That's life in the kingdom of heaven, is each one of us living fully alive before you in this world and the next. So we love you, Jesus. Uh, we will listen to your teaching. We will follow your words, and we will honor you with our lives. And we ask this on your name. Amen. So we... Uh, Aaron's going to come on up. We take communion every Sunday at Exodus. And uh, the night Jesus was betrayed, he actually had the bread. They were celebrating the Passover, which was the freedom of God's people. And even in the Passover, you see this sense of God's people being freed, the Egyptians being destroyed. God's people being freed, those who resist God being destroyed. But Jesus was celebrating this, and he said, this is my bread broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember me. This is my blood shed for you, poured out for you, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus said. And he said it was the forgiveness of sins for many, not just you, for others. So um, every week when we take communion, I try to give you some kind of thing to remember about Jesus, um, about what he said. So maybe this week when you take his body and blood into you. Remember some of the small things you're doing to honor Jesus that you don't think is making a difference. Maybe small decisions you have made and you don't think it's making any difference in your life or the lives of others, but take that into you, that Jesus says, no, those small things, they will grow and you will flourish. Just be patient and wait for that to happen. All right? So Aaron, come on up and lead us. And I'll pray. So, Jesus, you, uh, you're, the, you're the greatest teacher ever, and sometimes uh, we don't understand. But we know enough to know that you've set us free. You're setting us free, and we want to follow you. And, and we also know that you loved us so much that you gave yourself up to be crucified and then God raised you from the dead. So that's why, we, that's why we're here. Apart from that, you're just a good moral teacher. 
But now, because of the cross and your resurrection, you are a supernatural God who empowers us with his Holy Spirit. So we're grateful, Jesus, that you opened that door for us. We don't have just to try harder and harder to be good people. We allow your kingdom inside of us, your spirit inside of us, to give us direction and life and peace. So we, we're grateful, Jesus. We take this into our bodies out of gratitude to you. We ask this on your name. Amen.